Um, tonight our small groups are meeting. The Dirk's home and the Landman's home. I know Mark Landman is not here this morning. He actually has a preaching opportunity today at uh, Temple Baptist Church. So that's where he is. Um, but uh, small groups are meeting at his house and at the Dirk's house. Talking about the application of my message today. But particularly application probably of Jonah. Jonah 3 and Jonah chapter 4. So I encourage you to come to that if you just want to say, how does this flush out in my life? That's the aim of that. Uh, this week is a busy week. We have uh, ladies' Bible study on Tuesday night. Uh, yes, Andy. And uh, there's, a, there's a table in the back there filled with a bunch of uh, resources for the ladies. Ladies, you can look at that. Uh, books, CDs, you can take, check out from the library. Wednesday, our, our youth groups are meeting. Uh, the man and uh, sons and also the daughters and mothers. Uh, Maggie Weeby's going to come talk about modesty issues for the, the girls. It'll be a great time uh, for that. Oratorio is next Sunday. If you just want to come and see what that's about, uh, you can do that. Um, just an opportunity to go to a nursing home and seek to share Christ's love with uh, the people there. Well, we're in Jonah chapter 4 this morning. You can open your Bibles there. Perhaps you're already there, but if you're turning there, I want to tell you about uh, someone who died uh, less than a month ago, February 28, 2009. The famous person who died, 90 years old, radio broadcaster, a thousand stations known throughout America for more than 50 years. Do you know who his name is? Paul Harvey. And Paul Harvey's most famous for a, a little five-minute spot, which is called the rest of the story. I know you all know what that's about. It's uh, you know, a story where he talks about factual information about something and then he then gives you a twist at the end. Like, for instance, uh, one radio broadcast, he told of a 13-year-old boy who received a cash gift from Franklin Roosevelt and how he cherished that gift and liked it and everything and then you found out at the end it was the 13-year-old boy was Fidel Castro. He says, now you know the rest of the story. Always, you know, just kind of some, some type of, of twist. Well, this morning, in our exposition of Jonah, we will hear the rest of the story. The past three weeks, we've been in Jonah. We saw three weeks ago in chapter 1 how God had called Jonah to preach to Nineveh. He said, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And rather than going to Nineveh, you know that Jonah did an about-face and went down to Tarshish, the far west, the remotest part of the known world, on a ship. That's where he went. God pursued him, though, bringing the storm, identifying him as the one who, the, who caused the storm. After a bit of discussion with the captains and sailors, Jonah eventually thrown out of the ship. The sea calmed. Yes, it was him who caused this disturbance, and then God appointed a fish to swallow him. In chapter 2, we saw Jonah in the stomach of the fish, God's agent of mercy upon his life. And Jonah knew full well that the Lord had saved him, that the fish was his means of deliverance. He said while he was in the midst there, thanking the Lord, praising the Lord for the salvation that came to him. Then in chapter 3, the call comes to Jonah the second time. He says, well, I'm going to go this time. I don't want to be swallowed up again. And so he took off and went to Nineveh. He preached a half message. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And amazingly, the city of Nineveh repents. They received a half message from the, from the greatest, the king on the throne, to the least, the lowliest servant of the poorest home in Nineveh. They all repented. More than 120,000 people repented. And last week, I pointed out how amazing it was that, that they received a half message they had, they had no promise of deliverance for repentance. This message was preached by a half-hearted prophet. These people who heard the message, heard about this God they barely knew. And yet, they still repented the first time they heard the message. We read of God's response here in verse 10. When God saw their deeds, they turned from their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, the story of Jonah could well end there, and it would be a great story. A story of a wayward prophet who went off, but God called him and, and grabbed him and brought him back to Nineveh, and he preached, and there was a great revival and a great success of the Lord, and all 
turned out happily ever after. In fact, this is how the story of Jonah often ends. I have a, uh, a children's book here. Obedience, Jonah and the Big Fish. I just want to read for you just a little bit about how, how it ends. Right, here, here, kids, you can see the, the picture here of Jonah being vomited up onto the land. You see that, kids? See that, Jared? And then he comes and it says, Jonah finally went to Nineveh, as God said. God wants you to obey Him or you will be punished, Jonah cried. The people of Nineveh were sorry for their sin and God was glad they listened to His message and He did not punish them. And we see the second page. Jonah is disgruntled here. What, why isn't God punishing them? complained Jonah. I came all this way for nothing. Now, now I look silly to everyone. Jonah did not really care about what God wanted. Jonah was just afraid about what other people might think of him. And then comes a story that, the end, that some people say Jonah ends this way. Jonah learned to love the people of Nineveh. God forgave those people because he loved them so much. God wanted Jonah to obey him, and he wants us to obey him too. Obeying God makes us happy because God always knows what's best for us. Now there's lots of, there's lots of truth there. Because God wants us to obey, there is happiness when we actually obey. But the picture here is of a big happy family where Jonah learns to love the people of Nineveh and they love Jonah and it's all bliss. But that's not quite how the rest of the story unfolded. Jonah chapter 4 tells us how the rest of the story took place. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? It's best read there with a big dramatic pause. We'll get there. Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. And the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head. So he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You would compassion the plant for which you not work which you not caused to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right and left hand, as well as many animals? And it leaves us hanging. The book of Jonah ends with a question. The children's book tried to resolve the issue. Oh, they lived happily ever after. Jonah loved the people, but we don't know that. God basically ends the story by saying, should I not have compassion? Here's the question. Should I not have compassion? Jonah, why are you angry? Shouldn't I have compassion? And that's the question that should ring and linger. And we'll get to that question in a bit. My outline this morning has two points. First is found in verses 1 through 3. Contrary, I think, to your outline, your outline in your bulletin says one through four. It's really one through three. First point, angry at God. Angry at God. This is Jonah. He is angry at God. You can see it there in the first verse, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. Literally there, literally, literally, the word means hot. He was he was smoking hot. Is, we're not talking here about a man who's a bit disappointed or mildly displeased. No, we're talking red in the face, boiling, steaming over in some sort of rage. 
I, I can imagine that he's just there, God, how could you do this? You know these people of Nineveh. How could you forgive them? They're killers. They're rapists. They're immoral. They're idolaters. How can you pour out your forgiveness and mercy and compassion on them? How could you? That's what he was like. He's fuming mad. Maybe you've seen that. March Madness started this past Thursday. Much to the detriment of some of my time this past weekend as I've been watching. You've seen maybe the coaches boiling over. Traveling charge! He's out of bounds! Just angry at the referees. That was Jonah. Jonah was angry at God. You say, why was he angry? Well, verse 2 explains why he was angry. I think after settling down a bit, this is what he prayed. He said, please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. Then he said, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Jonah's angry with the Lord. Why? Angry because God was merciful. He's angry because God was merciful. God showed mercy to an undeserving people. These were wicked people. These were godless people. These were a hated people. That's why he left. I mean, verse 2 leads us back into chapter 1. It's why he didn't go to Nineveh. Not because he was afraid of the Iraqis. He was ready to preach the gospel there in Mosul, which is Iraq today, which is Nineveh. It's not because he, he didn't want to travel. He was ready to leave a family if he had one to go and do what God said. But rather, he didn't go because he knew that God would be merciful to his enemies. Jonah knew if he would go to Nineveh and preach that God would forgive them and not destroy them. And that's the last thing Jonah wanted. Jonah wanted to see Nineveh wiped from the face of the earth. He hated the Ninevites. And with good reason. Just in a short 50 years, they'd come and wipe out the Israelites. They were the enemies of Israel. But the thing that he dreaded most about the Ninevites is that they would live on, that God would have compassion upon them and not destroy them. So why was Jonah angry? He was angry because God was merciful. Think about it. He was angry because he knew the character of God. That's why I say he was angry at God. He was angry for God for who he was. He knew that God was a merciful God because he knew his Bible. We saw in Jonah chapter 2 about the, the Psalms that just spewed forth from his lips. The Psalms talk much about the gracious, kind character of God. Consider the following. Psalm 86, verse 15. You, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Almost verbatim here. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Psalm 145, verse 8, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. Those just three psalms that say much the same thing. You are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abundant loving kindness. Jonah knew that because he knew his Bible well. He knew well of God's character. He knew that God was merciful. He knew that God was gracious. He knew that God was slow to anger. And he knew that God was filled and abundant with loving kindness. You know it from the Psalms. It's also in the Pentateuch when Moses encountered God, said, God, show me your glory. He said, you can't see my glory. He put him in a cleft of a rock and then he descended and he came by and he said, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he'll by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of our fathers and the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. But He abounds in loving kindness. But those who stay in their sin, He will punish. But those who turn and relent, He abounds in loving kindness to them. And Jonah knew this about God and hated it. 
and so he was angry with God. And you see his displeasure there in verse 3. He says, take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. He wanted to die. So distasteful was his thought. And it wasn't the thought anymore, it was the reality. I mean, when it was the thought, he fled. But when it was the reality, it was even worse. That Nineveh had been forgiven and God relented and God didn't destroy them. He said, take my life, I want to die. He's not the, he's not the first man of God who's ever wanted to die. Job's sufferings brought him to a point would that God were willing to crush me, he said. That he would loose his hand and cut me off. Such were his sufferings. Moses was so distraught by the complaints of the people when they're demanding of things things he could not possibly do. Moses said, If you're going to deal thus with me, O Lord, please kill me at once. Elijah the prophet. After he destroyed the 850 prophets of Baal, that was fine and good, but Jezebel was after him, and so he fled for a day, found himself under a juniper tree, and he begged to die. He said... It is enough now, O Lord. Please take my life, for I am not better than my father's. In other words, I need to be like my ancestors. I should be in the ground. Kill me, God. Such was the desperation of these men. Such was the desperation of Jonah. He said he wanted to die. He wanted to die because of what he knew and experienced in the character of God. Now take note here very carefully that Correct theology does not mean you have God's heart. Jonah had his theology down pat. He was exactly right in God's character, his compassion, his his loving kindness, how he relents concerning calamity to those who repent. And God didn't like it. Jonah didn't like it. He didn't identify with God's heart. He He didn't link with God's heart. His heart was stony. And how many are there in this world whose theology is nice and neat and correct and they have it exactly right, but their heart is far from God? There are lots of people like that. Many know God's truth really, really well, but they lack God's heart for mercy. And oftentimes, people who know God's Word really, really well are hard and demanding and and, and calling people to live up to the righteous standard of the law and, and won't accept them unless they do all these things. They defend themselves, chapter and verse, but they've missed the heart of God. You've heard the phrase Bible bangers before? You ever heard that before? Have you heard that before? Come on. Have you heard it? Yes. What is this? People who take the Bible and just club people with it. Bam! Bam! Oops. That works. I made it to the fourth row, huh? You know what? I, you know what? You're, you're, I, that's a gift to you. It's a gift. It's Rock Valley Bible Church pen. You can take it right there. It's yours. So you ducked. Very nice. I could have thrown it to him. You're right, Gage. Anyway, let's try that again. They take the Bible and they just beat people with the Bible. Chapter and verses, and yet they miss the soft heart of God. They take the Bible, use it like a club. And, and, and people can say, oh, we don't lack it. And say, here, come to my church and let me show you all the people that I love. And come to a church and they see all the people that they love. And, and indeed, there is some love there. And then Jesus said, though, He said, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do that? You, you could pick someone who's like Nineveh, a typical person in Nineveh, right? He's out in the bars on the weekend. He says, I love people. Look at all these people in the bar. I would give the shirt off my back for any one of these people because these are my buddies. And so people in the Bible bashing group say, oh, look at all of our buddies right here. But God's heart is even extended and loving towards those who are without Christ, especially the Ninevites. And if there's no love there for your enemies, you've missed the heart of God. That was the heart of Jesus. Pray for your enemies. Right? And that's where the rubber meets the road. 
God extends mercy to His enemies. And you know, you've got to catch that. God extends mercy to His enemies. That's, that's a good spot for an amen, I think, right? <laughs> God extends mercy to His enemies. Amen. amen. That is the glories of the Gospel. God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, that's when Christ died for us. He's dying on the pro- upon the cross for people in Nineveh. If while we're enemies we are reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we'll be saved in this life. Romans 5.10 It's when we're enemies that God reconciled us to Himself. Because God has a heart of compassion for the lost. That's the point of the Gospel, that God loved us even when we're enemies even when we're disobedient, even when we're rebellious. And I just ask you, dear people, do you have a love for lost people? Are there, how about this? Are there people in your life who have you spoken enough with about the glories of Christ and, and the terrors of hell that they know where you stand? And yet, when they think about you, say, this guy believes I'm going to hell, but he's loving me to death. Or do we see those people who are blasphemous against God and we just shun them and resist them and oppose them and give them further reason to hate God? These are your people, God? They don't like me either. I don't like you. To hell with them all. Or is it that, wow, this person says I'm going to hell, but man, does he love me. Where does he get that? I've blasphemed this God. I've hated Him, and yet still He comes back with mercy and grace and compassion and kindness. I don't need that. I don't deserve that. And yet it's coming. Are there people in your life like that? They can't explain anything else about you. They know what you believe, but they can't deny your love and your mercy and your kindness towards them. That's the call of Jonah. The call of the book, right? Do you love mercy? Mercy will extend to the enemy, even the enemy of God. Mercy will still be there. We'll let God deal with the judgment. It's not, it's not throwing out all judgment. It's not throwing out discernment in any way. But it is, it is saying that when they're enemies, God's heart is one of gracious compassion and love and kindness and forbearance and patience. And by the way, that's the very thing that leads people to repentance, right? Romans 2.4. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. If you want to reach out and extend and find a God-hater to be a, a God-lover, extend in kindness and grace and long-suffering and patience. That's what leads people to repentance. The religious leaders of the day hated mercy. Think about it. If anyone knew the Scriptures, they knew the Scriptures. They'd memorize the Torah, many of them. And yet, they miss the heart of God. And it most clearly comes out when Jesus heals people on the Sabbath. I mean, Jesus dealt with lots of healings, but in the Gospel accounts, you have many times where He's healing people on the Sabbath. And time after time again, you see the Pharisees angry because Jesus extended mercy. It's just like Jonah. I'll just pull out one occasion. Luke 13, Jesus was in the synagogues on the Sabbath, he was teaching them, and in came a woman. She'd been doubled over for 18 years. Now, some of you have seen old women walking like this. 18 years of walking doubled over. Jesus saw her, called her over, and said, Woman, you are free from your sickness. He laid hands on her. She was walking, and immediately she was erect, healed says that she began glorifying God. Now, would that, not be a, would that be a wonderful thing? To have someone in our congregation who walked around like this for 18 years, scoliosis or something? <laughs> what would we do? Woo-hoo-hoo! Praise the Lord! What a wonderful miracle! And yet, what did the hard-hearted Pharisees say? The synagogue official became indignant. 
because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And they began saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, but not on the Sabbath day. He's banging his Bible and got verses about the Sabbath, but missing the heart of God, which is a, a compassionate, loving, kind grace of God. And you see that again and again in the Gospel accounts. Jesus extends mercy on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees hate it. Why? Because they hate it that God is merciful and gracious. How about you? Do you love mercy? Do you love the mercy of God? Jonah hated the mercy of God. That's why he was angry at God. Beginning now in verse 4, we have Jonah answering to God. Dialogue, conversation, coming back and forth. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? In these words, God is just, God's just putting His finger on Jonah and his problem. Jonah had no good reason to be angry. God knew that, and Jonah knew that. And yet God, though wrath had been spewed up towards him from Jonah's mouth, was very gracious. The Proverbs say, Proverbs 15:1, the gentle answer turns away wrath, and that's what God was right here. The Lord said, Jonah, Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry? I said earlier there should be a, a pause there. Jonah had no answer. We don't see him saying anything back at this point. Just Jonah went out from the city. But God was being so kind and gracious like he always is in the garden. Adam, where are you? He knew where Adam was. He's just trying to get Adam to see and acknowledge his sin. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? He's trying to get him to say yes. I ate of the tree and I'm sorry and confessing it all. And Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry? You know what? I don't. I don't. Again, you see even here that, that mercy is what's leading to repentance or the aim towards that. God could have reprimanded him. You have no reason to be angry, young man. Shape up. Change your attitude right now. Come on. What do you do? Jonah, think about it. Do you have good reason to be angry? Modeling mercy to a hard heart. Anyway, in verse 5, we find Jonah going out from the city and sitting east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. Unlike Nineveh that repented at the preaching of Jonah, Jonah didn't repent at the gentle prodding of God. Rather, he walked out on God's question, found a place where he could look over the city of Nineveh. Maybe it was up on a little hill or a little mound or something. Found a nice place where he could see. It was hot then at those times, so he built a little shelter for himself, quickly put up. I don't know how good it was, but it helped at least a little bit. In the scorching sun, it was just shade under him. <clears throat> and he was going to sit there sulking until he could see what exactly happened. I mean, this has got a grumpy face written all over it. Kids, you know what grumpy faces are? Andrew, do you know what grumpy faces? That's right, you're modeling one right there. Very good. How about all you kids model grumpy faces for me? Becca, can you do one? Oh, you're never grumpy, huh? <laughs> Probably not. How about, how about someone else? That's right, Kendra, can you do a grumpy face? I bet Caleb, you can do a grumpy face, huh? <laughs> He had a grumpy face. And he was just sorrowful, just trying to manipulate God, going in protest. Body language would have been soaked over. Just sitting there saying, God, what are you going to do? God, you promised to destroy these people. Are you going to do it, huh? No, remember, God relented, but he was going to see what God would do. Well, the gentle prodding didn't work, so God gave him an object lesson. He says, okay, this isn't working. Let's try a different tact. Parents, you know what that's like. You try one tack, it didn't work for the kids, so you try something else. Or here, it's like this. Here, let me tell you a story. Or you, That's what he's doing. He's going to make an object lesson here. Verse 6. 
the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Now this is, this is very funny about Jonah and where he's going, but you've got to see, verse 6, that this is mercy all over this verse. Jonah responded poorly to the call of Nineveh. He turned back, he, he preached in Nineveh, and then he responded, responded poorly to the repentance of Nineveh. He responded poorly to the probing question of God. Sat out sulking, and God, rather than preserving Nineveh and destroying Jonah, actually was still gracious to Jonah, was still preserving Jonah, was showing forth His mercy upon Jonah, giving him some earthly comfort. Jonah, did he deserve this? Jonah deserved the wrath of God coming down on Nineveh, diverted all to him. He's the guy in the know. He's the guy that's got the theology right, and he's the guy that's missing the heart of God. Where all those Ninevites got the heart of God, repenting from their sin. Instead, God gave him a plant for his discomfort. We don't know what kind of plant this is. Some translations say it's a gourd. Some say it was a vine. Some say it was a castor oil plant, which grows up in hot climates. Huge, tall, 10, 12 feet with um, big leaves. We don't know. The best translation is what the New American Standard says, the plant. Because the point is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it is. Just like the fish, it doesn't matter whether it's a whale or it's a special sea monster. What matters is that Jonah was in the fish. And what matters here is that Jonah's in the shade of the plant. Verse 10, we know that it grew up overnight. It was a a miraculous plant. It was a miracle plant. Super duper miracle grow. Took this plant and brought it up. God had a purpose in the plant. You can see a twofold purpose there. To be a shade and to deliver him from his discomfort. And it did its purpose very well. It says Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. So he goes when it's sulking, and this plant comes up, and he's like elated and happy. Kids, can you be happy? Andrew, can you be happy? Yes! Yes! Caleb, can you be happy now? Yes! I got this plant over me. This is wonderful. You know, and, and probably his, his shelter helped a little bit, but maybe didn't help, help everything. But you got this plant over there, and maybe with some moisture, you know, maybe a cool breeze, maybe help cool it down, the, the temperature a little bit much more than the shade. I can't help but to think that Jonah would have been diagnosed as bipolar. <laughs> right, on the one hand, he's discouraged, wanting to die, and then he's very happy. And then by verse 8 again, he's going to want to die again. Just back and forth. Unstable. But his happiness is a testimony to the suitability of the plant. See, when God does a miracle, he does a good job. When Jesus turned the water into the wine, he made the best wine. When Jesus fed the multitudes, he satisfied everybody. When he healed people, he healed them completely. I mean, the woman who was healed, crunched over, didn't like... Didn't, didn't walk around like this and say, hey, look, I'm erect. No, she was like this, all the way, completely healed. That's what Jesus did. And so God appointed Jonah a very good plant. He didn't skimp. He got the real deal. He didn't just get fake plants, right? I mean, he got the real deal. And Jonah was happy. His happiness, though, doesn't last very long. We see his disappointment now in verse 7, when God, in the midst of his object lesson, appointed a worm. When dawn, when dawn came the next day. And the worm attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die and saying, death is better to me than life. There he goes, wanting to die again. Wanting to die because God gave him the second part of his object lesson. What God gave, he took away. He should have been like Job. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But in Jonah's case, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, I'm angry at your dad, God! Didn't respond rightly. We see God intervening. In verse 7, appointing a worm. The word for worm, we don't know what kind of worm it was, it just literally means a tiny. Something small is what he appointed. God can use a big fish, he can use the tiny worm. 
And then verse 7, again we see God appointing. Verse 8, appointed a scorching east wind. God can blow upon the sea, chapter 1, and He can blow in the desert, all for His purposes. This desert wind here is often called a Sirocco. During periods of a Sirocco with a scorching east wind, the temperature rises steeply, climbing sometimes during the night, remains high about 16 to 22 degrees above normal. So he's out there in the desert, he's got shade, and he's comforted by a plant, and then the plant goes away, and then the Sirocco comes in, raises the temperature another 20 degrees. One commentator says that at times, every scrap of moisture seems to be extracted from the air. So one has a curious feeling that one's skin has been drawn much tighter than usual. Sirocco days are peculiarly trying to the temper and tend to make even the mildest of people irritable and fretful to snap at one another for apparently no reason at all. And Jonah snapped at God. Death is better to me than life. I'd rather die, God. I'd rather die than tolerate you showing your mercy to Nineveh. And again, God comes in gentleness, kindness, patience. He didn't say, okay, you got your wish. There you go. He said, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Wanting to die, he still doesn't get it. And that's the last we hear of Jonah. He wants to die. He wants to die because he hated mercy. And then God leaves us with the punchline, the question of the book, the question of Jonah, which I've summarized, do you love mercy? Which God says this way, relating this object lesson to Jonah, relating it to Nineveh, pulling it all together. He says this, Jonah, you had compassion of the plant, which you did not work, you did not cause to grow, it came up overnight, and it perished overnight. This one measly, small, well, big plant, this one plant you had great compassion for and great love for, but listen, there are some who are more excellent and greater than plants, namely the people of Nineveh. He said, then, should I not behave exactly like you, Nineveh, and have compassion upon Nineveh, the great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right and left hand as well as many animals. I mean, Jonah, had you had your wish, you'd have said, that plant is going to live for these 40 days while I'm out here to see whether they, God destroys Nineveh or not. You wanted the plant to live. Should I not want Nineveh to live? This, this crowd of people... There's all discussions about whether it means that Nineveh was 120,000 people some say that it's 120,000 people who don't know the difference between the right and left hand. How many of you children know the difference between your right and left hand? Hannah, do you? Yeah, Becca, do you? Gage, do you know the difference between your right and left hand? Where's your right? Raise your, raise your right hand. Good, all right, you do. Was he lucky, Darren? No, okay, he knows it. Is anyone else, right? You guys all know the difference between your right and left hand? Maybe there's someone. That, Caleb, do you know? Raise your left hand, Caleb. You look at that. Some say that uh, he was just referring to children here. More than 120,000 children. Could be. If so, you're talking about a million people, 600,000 people. Who knows how many people in Nineveh? I don't think the point here is how many there are. It's just a mass of humanity. There's a lot of people, 120,000 people, all of Rockford at least. And maybe more like Milwaukee. We don't know. A lot of people. And, and with this many people, shouldn't I have compassion for that city? If nothing else, even the animals. Shouldn't I have compassion in the city for the sake of the animals? Animals are higher than plants. Animals eat plants. Shouldn't I have compassion on them? And that's where the book ends. That's the rest of the story. And that's where God means for us to hang. In the end, we don't know how Jonah ended up answering to God. The answer is, yes, God, you should have compassion on these people. 
But we don't know how Jonah responded. It has been interesting just over these weeks that I've been teaching through Jonah. The question often comes, what happened to Jonah? What happened to Jonah? Did he repent? Did he turn back? There's some that think that Jonah couldn't have written Jonah unless he did turn back but wanted for effect to leave us hanging. But we don't know. I've had many people say, what do you think? What happened to Jonah? What happened to Jonah? We don't know. It's a little bit like when I read stories to my children sometimes. In fact, uh, Hannah and Stephanie have been into bedtime stories recently. I've been reading them a couple times. And, and they say, read more. Read more. They want more. Sometimes we read stories of family. We reached a, a climactic point and we shut the book and they say, no, we want more. But it's time to go to bed. In church family, it's time to go to bed. Time to stop. Not really. We're going to go on. But we never have these questions of Jonah answered. But you know what? That's the point. The point isn't a happy, feel-good story. Say, oh, they got along. Isn't that great for them? No, what happens is these questions ought to turn to us. Like one man wrote, like an echo bouncing off the canyon walls, this question continues to reverberate through the centuries. Should I not be concerned? Should I not be concerned? Should I not be concerned? What an astonishing question. Then this writer said, the more I hear it, the less I think about Jonah and the more I think about myself. Do I share God's heart? And that's what I want you all to do. You know what? We don't know whether Jonah repented or not or what his heart, whether he shared the heart of God. We don't know. But the question is for you. Are you going to share the heart of God? Do you love mercy? Especially upon those who have rebelled against the Lord. I want to close my message this morning by looking at the story of the prodigal son. So open your Bibles to Luke 15. Because this is the New Testament parallel to the book of Jonah. I'm sure you remember the story. Jesus told of the... uh, the son who asked for half of the inheritance went off, squandered his living with loose, squandered his estate with loose living. But finally, after all his money was spent, he was herding pigs, which were detestable for the Jews at that time, wanting to eat the, the slop that they're eating. He said, my servants, my father's house are better than this. I'm going to go back. And he goes back and repents before his father. And it says in verse 20, here's God, the merciful God, the father represents God. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life. Again, he was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. <laughs> That's mercy, right? He brings the son back who squandered all of this hard-earned estate that he had. His estate value was just cut in half. Not by the stock market. It was cut in half by loose living, wasteful, prodigal living. And then this father was prodigal to the son as well, showing mercy to Nineveh. And then along comes the older son, verse 25, who could be called Jonah, for the truth known. And his older son was in the field. When he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. What's this? And he summoned one of his servants, and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And how did the brother respond? Who, for illustrative purposes, we don't know his name, I'll call Jonah. How did Jonah respond? To mercy shown towards an undeserving person. (laughs) He became angry and was not willing to go in. (laughs) Rather, he wanted to sit outside of the party and the dancing to see if his father would change his mind and actually kick his son out. 
Maybe he built a booth for himself. I'm not sure. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He said to him, Son, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost, and now has been found. And it leaves us hanging again. Jesus tells us nothing about the end of the story, whether the son actually came back or whether it remained hard, just like Jonah. We don't know. But that's not the point. What's the point? You ought not to be angry at those who repent and come in. The Father always, even, you know, think about it, when the Father was looking far off, He always had a love, He always had a compassion, He always had a care and a concern for His Son, who was, in many ways, the enemy of the Father. Why was His Son so angry? He thought He had earned this place with His Father, been faithful at home for years. Think that He got what He deserved. I should have had that feast because I worked for that feast. But when you gave it to my brother who didn't earn it, too much for him because he hated mercy. Oh, he would have loved it come upon him because he thought, oh, I earned it. Yep, God, my, your favor upon me, I've earned it. But he hates it when it's not earned. See, you might say this. What is it that causes us to despise mercy and to hate mercy when God's kindness comes to others? Here's really what it is. I think Jonah suffered from this as well. It's self-righteousness. Self-righteous. When the, when the son thinks himself righteous and deserving, it's over. You're not going to love mercy when you think that you've earned stuff before God. Look at all the laws I've obeyed. I've kept all the commandments, kept them from my youth. Look at how good I am. You'll hate mercy if you think that you earn your way to God. And I say that because, chapter 15, verse 1, it was all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to Him. Sinners, undeserving people, Ninevites. But both the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus was trying to show these self-righteous Pharisees who were grumbling because Jesus was being merciful to sinners, having the heart of God, how they are like the prodigal's brother. They don't love mercy. They're grumbling at Jesus, therefore they are grumbling at God. I think that's Jonah's problem as well. He thought himself to be of the privileged tribe of Israel. He was a prophet in Israel. Our God is our God. He's not the God of anybody else and we've earned it. How skewed that is. Think that Israel earned their standing before God? If you know the story of Israel, you know that not, just God's grace abounds and abounds and abounds and abounds to them. But I think that Jonah was self-righteous. He thought the Ninevites, apart from Israel, were wicked and deserved God's judgment, not His mercy. I just ask, then what about you? Which prodigal son are you? Are you the one that's come back and received the mercy of God? Or are you the one that looks afar off and hates the mercy of God when it comes about? You know, we are real danger. We are church folk, right? We are danger of being the Pharisees and Sadducees who have the Bible, who know the Bible, who can suddenly think, oh, look at all that I deserve. I read my Bible. I pray every day. I don't fast. I... I fast all I get, right? Luke 18. I pay tithes of all that I get. I fast twice a week. I thank you that I'm righteous, not like this tax collector down here. When the tax collector saw his unworthiness, beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What did Jesus say? Went down to his house justified? Not the self-righteous Pharisee, but the tax collector who pleaded the mercy of God. And I just say this to church. That's why... The cross of Christ needs to be central in all that we do. It continues to remind us of our sin before God. It continues to remind us that we don't stand before God based on our own merits. We stand only through Christ. And when we see that, then we'll see 
that we are totally undeserving of all the mercy and kindness and grace God's gets, that God has given us. And when we think that way, we will love mercy. Because when we experience mercy on ourselves, we will extend it and mercy towards others. And when we know it and are convinced that it's not because of our own righteousness. Oh, church family, as we close the book of Jonah, I simply say this. Do you love mercy? May the answer in our hearts resonate with yes. Let's pray. Lord, I have feebly tried this morning to put forth Your Word. Show us how important it is for us to, to love mercy. I pray, God, You'd help us. I pray as we sift this through in our small groups tonight, as we look upon our own lives and see where we don't love mercy, I pray that You'd convict us of that and cause us to rejoice when You're merciful with others. Help us to see ourselves rightly. Help us not to be like Jonah. Help us to be like Jesus. How much better to love our enemies, let you deal with the wrath, certainly communicate to them the judgment that's coming, but love them to the very end. So much that even when Jesus was on the cross, they're crucifying him, saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And we are tormented and hurt and harmed by others. May we as well say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And treat them mercifully. Lord, the power of your gospel would shine through us and through Christ. For the glory of God, who we enjoy and long to worship. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, you're dismissed. Have a great day. Children, come on up. We'll talk about your notes together.